This is the Extra Innings Podcast. We're going to Extra Innings. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Breaking down all the latest with the blue. Hosted by Dodger insider and award-winning reporter. You have one for most entertaining talk show host to listen to while on the way to work. David Vassay. Welcome to episode 13 of the Extra Innings Podcast presented by Corona Extra, the official cerveza of La Vida Mas Fina. Find the fine life. Please drink responsibly. Corona Extra beer imported by Crown Imports. David Vassay and I am uh, live here at Petco Park in San Diego. The Dodgers and Padres are getting set for game two of a three-game series. So that's where we are as we uh, bring you episode 13 of the Extra Innings podcast. We have a great show for you this week. Paul Canerco is going to join us. Yes, Paul Canerco, the former Dodger and one of a handful of Dodgers in the late 90s, early 2000s that got away. Paul Canerco, Pedro Martinez, Mike Piazza, and Adrian Beltre. Four great players that could have shared the same field at Dodger Stadium, but were traded or were let go via free agency. And one of those guys, Paul Canerco, is going to join us to talk about the Dodger years. And as always, our guy, Andre Ethier, will check in. He wants to give us a scouting report on the Ethier family trip to Disneyland. And we'll talk some baseball with Dre as well. But before we get to Paul Canerco, I want to give you our stat of the week. As the Dodgers close out this six-game road trip, they will come back home to face the Cubs and San Francisco Giants for a six-game homestand. The Dodgers have not lost a series at home to the Cubs since 2014. Since then, they're 12-5 and against the Cubs at Dodgers Stadium. So a big four-game series as Jock Peterson returns to Dodger Stadium in a Cubs uniform. All right, let's get to Paul Canerco. He's standing by. All right, the Extra Innings podcast always gives us a great opportunity to bring back some former Dodgers and to talk to some great people. And this week, we're very fortunate that Paul Canerco is going to join us. He was the number one overall pick for the Dodgers in the 94 draft. He was drafted overall 13th in that draft out of Chaparral High School in Scottsdale, Arizona. He would go on to play 18 seasons in the major leagues and one of the best players of his generation. Unfortunately, the majority of those years with the Chicago White Sox. But Paul joins us right now. How are you doing, Paul? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. No problem. I, I guess the first obvious question is, Paul, everybody always wonders what baseball players do once they retire. So what is Paul Canerco up to these days? Oh, man. Uh, mainly chasing kids around. I have uh, 15, uh, 12, and 9-year-old uh, kids. And, uh, you know, pretty much the day revolves around them, uh, you know, just, you know, depending on what they have going on. And, um, you know, every now and again, I'm able to get maybe a little golf in for myself and, and uh, some other things. But uh, mainly it's just uh, basically everything I couldn't do when I was playing, which is kind of be at home and just be here to, you know, help. And it's obviously a great time 
with those ages in terms of what they got going on. So, you know, you don't want to miss anything. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of, I'm just kind of hunkered down and just living, uh, you know, the, the, as far away from the baseball life as, as possible right now. I'm curious as a former athlete and a competitor, did you have any competition withdrawals after you retired? And do you try to channel that in any direction in your life? You know, not really. I I was like so fresh out of, like I I was done. You know what I mean? I I had burned it so far so long that um, there's really not that inside of me anymore. Like, I feel like I, if it was like a gas tank, like I walked out the door on the last day, like (laughs) completely empty. Uh, yeah. So yeah. that's the good news is I, I was lucky enough, healthy enough throughout my career um, that I kind of got it all out of my system. Um, and it was, it was hard. It was tough um, to get through it all. And, you know, I, I totally understand the guys who have that when they're done um, and they might get back into managing or, or, or doing something where they have to have that drive. And, you know, I'll play a little golf and, um, I was a hockey player when I was a kid. So I get on the ice and I play up with some pickup games and whatnot. And yeah, there's a little bit here and there at some times, but like, you know, I, I tell guys like when well, I'm either golfing or playing hockey, they listen. I'm, I have no more passion left in my body. Like I don't care, you know, um, cause I cared for so long about one thing that I feel like I don't have that in me. So, um, you know, I coached my kids baseball team and, uh, you know, every now and again, something will kind of pop up where I can feel the old juices flowing a little bit. Um, but yeah, I'm not, uh, I I think I have it under wraps. That sounds good. Yeah. It feels like people don't really understand when you played at the level that you played at, you don't just show up at the ballpark at four o'clock for a seven, 10 game. You're there a while before, and it kind of takes a lot of mental and as much as physical energy out of you. Right. Oh yeah. Especially towards the end. I mean, I was lucky enough to play till I was 38 and you know, those last, five, six, seven years, I mean, you're spending more time getting ready to play than actually playing. And you you certainly don't lose your love for the game because if anything, it kind of goes full circle. Um, Probably in the middle of your career, um, you know, you you just kind of take it for granted a little bit. As you get close to the end and you know it's the end, um, you kind of appreciate all of the little things and, you know, putting on the uniform every day and and just being able to kind of be on the team. You you recognize that you're kind of playing with house money a little bit. Um, but at the same time, it, it does get uh, like when people would ask, like, you know, now, like, Hey, you wish you'd go back and play. And I'd say, well, no, but if I did, I would want to go back to like when I was 28, like, I don't want to go back to the last five <laughs> or six years. And I had some good, I had some good years there too, but it's just, it's not the same juice and squeeze as it is earlier in your career. So um yeah, like I, I it definitely um, the, the the end part can be tough because if you, I mean, I don't know anybody that's played into their thirties that's not battling some sort of health issue or you know some sort of pain going on. So, um, and then the mental part, of course, is, is the, the grind of it. And and I remember um, Robin Ventura, who was my last manager, who's you know the greatest guy in the world, and and he said uh, he he knew I was retiring. Everybody knew I was retiring. He's like, man, you're gonna love it. He goes, man, you, when I get when I got done playing it was awesome. Like, you know, just get out of bed and be like, I don't need to know how to perform tonight. Like I don't need to come through with a hit tonight, you know? And it's, it's kind of, cause you know, it's not just the big leagues and the minor leagues. I mean, we're doing this thing since like little league, you know, uh, for like 30 years you're playing it. And so it's uh, if you do it right and you go hard and, and, and you do it the right way the whole time, you should have nothing left when you kind of walk out, you know? 
Yeah, and Paul, I know uh, you'll always be identified with the White Sox for the great career that you had, World Series championship. But if you can think back to your times with the Dodgers, is there something that stands out to you the most when you were starting your big league career in the in the Dodgers organization in Albuquerque, San Antonio, where it all really began to to get this thing going? Um, the biggest thing, and I I tell people all the time, you know, I was lucky because the number one thing I think of is the coaching. Um, I was I got drafted and I went to short season A ball. Um, I had Joe Vavra as a manager who was a great guy, great manager, great mentor. I went to A ball, I had Ron Renicky, I went to LA, I had John Shelby, and I went to AAA and I had Glenn Hoffman. And that's not to mention all the other coaches that are on those staffs and in spring training that are that are just were the best. You know, I had just great people showing me the way the whole way. So it wasn't until I got to another organization or two that I realized how good I had it and how much I learned and, and how much it made a difference. I mean, there was things that to the day I stopped playing um, when it came to certain you know situations and games or whatever else that I was using stuff that I was taught when I was 18, 19 years old by Dodger people, not the other teams that I was with. So uh, I know things changed uh, pretty drastically after I got traded in 98, I think was it Fox took over and it was kind of an overhaul of people and all that. But I was always proud to kind of have been part of the old um, Dodger, you know, the O'Malley Dodgers, you know? Yeah. And you were drafted out of high school as a catcher <clears throat> and didn't Mike Sosha try to work with you as a catcher before you changed positions? Oh yeah. I mean, not, not only worked, he was the catching coordinator at one point. So um yeah, there's just another name like, oh, yeah, Mike Sosha, like that guy, you know, like you had these guys <laughs> always around you that it was such just the presence of like greatness always kind of. I remember when I got moved to third, they're like, hey, Ron Say is going to be here to work with you today. Like, you know, there was always um, and, and mainly because they were probably grasping at straws at those positions. Like, hey, we've tried everything. Let's bring in let's bring in as many. <laughs> you know, Hall of Fame type guys to try to make this guy try to catch the ball. but And none of it worked, by the way. Uh, but, um, you know, it was just constant, uh, not only the physical stuff on the field and all that, but just, you know, how to conduct yourself and how to, um, you know, carry yourself throughout the season, throughout games. And I remember having Ron Renneke and A-ball, and, like, there were so many times that um, I screwed up the way I behave and he's like get over here you know come over here that's not the way you do it like this is the way you do it and those things just stick with you I mean you're like a basically like an infant when you get drafted and go into the minor league so you know how you're raised by the people around you um is, is so big um because at some point the talent kind of evens out and you know guys get to the big leagues but it's going to be the mental side and, and just the you know all that that's going to kind of carry you through to maybe have that career the, the longer uh, more productive career you know Paul, I always say you were one of uh, a handful of guys that got away, unfortunately, from the Dodgers. And we're so used to these Dodgers where they just move guys around defensively. Do you think if Paul Canerco was coming up with the Dodgers right now and Eric Karros was entrenched at first base, Paul Canerco would have been able to play a different position until it was time to move there? Um, probably not just because I was just so limited with the way I moved around, you know, I mean, what's asked of you at other positions, whether it be the corner outfield or third, um, certainly, you know, the catching was, the catching had gone bye-bye a long time before I got, <laughs> got to the big leagues, but, um, you know, the, the answer is probably no. And, 
that's probably what did me in. It was just, um, and by the way, when I got traded to the Reds, that, that's what did me in there, you know, it being another national league team and just not having the ability to play anywhere else but first and having people there um, in front of you. And, um, and it was twofold. Like, one, I was kind of like, you know, I don't care because I feel like in my heart I know I can hit enough to just play first and I don't need to have the other facets. I can hit enough to be valuable on a team. Uh, unfortunately, I just wasn't showing that. So um, it, it's, it's not, a you know, the people who made decisions uh, to, to, to make those decisions to move me, uh, to trade me, whether it was the Dodgers or when the Reds that I got traded to, those were the correct decisions at the time because I wasn't giving them anything, any good reason to keep me either. You know, it was all about the offense and I, w- I really wasn't delivering. Um, so, and then obviously with the Dodgers, I mean, they're trying to win every year. That, that never changes. So not only are you not hitting and you're young, they're also trying to win. Um, and so, you know, bad combination there. Um, so it took some time for me to, you know, I, I finally got to the White Sox where I had a situation where it was a team that was rebuilding, a bunch of people on the team that looked – and we're just like me, same age. And they also had that extra spot in the lineup with the DH. So, you know, you could work more people in, and it kind of went from there. Hey, Paul, I remember when you were with the Dodgers and you got called up in 97, and then you played about 75 games with them in 98. It felt like the media was trying to to put you and Eric Karros against each other. And then uh, I'm at a Wango Tango concert at Angel Stadium in 98, and Eric Karras brings you to the concert. Uh, what was your relationship with Eric uh, that season before you were traded? And am I remembering it correctly, how they were trying to say it's Canerco versus Karros? Yeah, I mean, for, first of all, it was, I mean, it was never that. I mean, I had a big 97 in AAA, and it was kind of one of those things like, we can't send him back, but I'm not sure he belongs on the team either. <laughs> and so what do we do here? And um, there was a couple injuries in spring training. I think there was one in the outfield to somebody. So they're like, let's see if we can play left. And, you know, I played, I think, most of all the games in left field that spring. And, you know, if I they hit right at me and it was a you know easy routine fly ball, okay, fine. But pretty much anything beyond that, like I was not a left fielder. And um, then Eric, I think with like a week to go, had some sort of knee procedure done. Uh, need. Like, okay, he's going to be out maybe the first month. Go back to first, and now you're going to kick off the season as the first baseman, and then we'll just reevaluate when he comes back. But, I mean, the most that was going to happen there is if, I, let's say, I got off to a real hot start or something like that. I mean, Eric was going to come back in. I mean, he was the guy, and, um, you know, um, and I certainly made it easy because I didn't hit uh, to get sent back down. So, uh, but yeah, Eric treated me great. I mean, um, he actually shot me a text the other day about something. Uh, every now and again, we'll, we'll touch base. But, no, I only have great memories of how he treated me. All those guys treated me. Um, Todd Zeal, Piazza, all those guys were really, really good to me. And um, I have nothing but great memories of, of those guys and how I was treated. It certainly wasn't – everybody tried to make me feel as comfortable as I could uh, to do well. Um, you know, it was on me of uh, not performing there, you know. Yeah, that was uh, that was so awesome to hear that. And I – you know, Tommy Lasorda had so many great moments with the Dodgers, but I still can't get over the way you were traded at Candlestick Park, and you had to make that walk to that clubhouse all the way down the right field line. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, does, that, was, that's, yeah. that had to bother you, right? You, you know what? I don't think it bothered me at the time because I didn't know any better to know what is the right protocol in these situations. And I think it was only after time. And I was like, man, that was kind of weird. They maybe could have waited till after the game to announce this trade or, <laughs> or whatever. And uh, I just remember, you know, um, 
uh, one of the clubhouse tenants came out and they're like, hey, Tommy needs to see inside. You know, it was like between like the third and fourth inning of Saturday, I think July 4th. And um, they're like, he needs to see inside. And, and Hoff, if you remember, Glenn Hoffman was the acting manager at that time. Um, I think he managed the rest of that year. And um, he was kind of looking at the clubhouse and like, like, what do you mean he has to go in? Like, you know, he's, he's eligible to play in this game. Like he's on, you know, he's, he's a player here. And they look at him and they go, yeah, and he wants you to go with him. And <laughs> so it was like, now you're taking the manager out of the dugout. I mean, when, you know, if this happened tonight in a game, I'm sure Twitter would blow up or something. But, um, you know, so we start walking across the field. And, um, again, I was playing first. I had third. I had outfield glove. I had all these gloves with me, my helmet. They said, yeah, bring your stuff with you. And, um, and I, I know Hawk was kind of angry, you know. And I didn't – again, I was younger. I wasn't putting it together. I should have known right then that I was traded. And – I could tell he was kind of miffed, and 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 I was and I was like, "What do you think?" And he's like, "Man, either you got fired, or he goes, either you got traded, or I just got fired." And I was like, well, "I hope I got traded. I don't want to see you get fired, you know, because I had him at AAA as my manager, and he was, again, one of those guys that I wouldn't have had the career I had if it wasn't for him, you know. I feel like in a lot of ways he, he taught me a lot and and raised me. But yeah, we get in there and. Uh, you know, it was, uh, hey, you know, remember the talk we had a week ago where you weren't going anywhere? Yeah, about that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff Shaw for Paul Canerco. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm curious that. because I'm a guy that always laments, like, you, Pedro, Piazza, that all got away, Beltre, who left as a free agent. Have you ever thought about how great your team would have been if the Dodgers didn't let you guys get away? You know, I've never thought about that because, you know, in like professional sports or in the big leagues, I mean, it's not like if you had a situation where um, it was a college team or a high school team where truly everybody was committed to a place and they had to be there. And then you had like an injury or somebody tra- like in the big leagues, there's so much movement and there's so much free agent, you know, the free agency and the trades and, and, and all those people you mentioned, you know, it was like so far after they left that they became kind of who they're known for that. The, I, the way I look at it is, and I, I'm, I'm guessing the other guys would maybe echo this, is that I would never would have had the career I had uh, unless I had the experience of, of getting moved, not only once by the Dodgers, but by the Reds. There had to be something like I played, you know, I kind of for a, a while thereafter, um, you know, played the game very angry and very um, just huge chip on my shoulder and um you i couldn't have gotten that without so the stuff that came after that the byproduct was that was the result but you know i i was always thankful because it made me um and probably something i wasn't with the dodgers and that was just i was soft you know i became much harder after that you know wow that's interesting to hear so you're saying the dog days of august in chicago you thought back to that day that you were traded in san francisco well, I wouldn't say that, but I'd say maybe the people <laughs> that traded me are watching. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, and so, like, I, I just remember putting my head down and, like, you know, I don't know if I ever, you know, um, it was well after I had, you know, 10 years at in Chicago before I really ever picked up my head and started to probably say, okay, you know what, you've done well here, you know, like you've had a good career. Like I was just I'm on a mission, you know, after that. Yeah, and you had a great career, Paul, and – you had such a great attitude about yourself and the way you carried yourself. And uh, it's really awesome to share you with Dodger fans on, on this landscape. So thanks a lot for the time and 
continued success, and hopefully we'll see you at a ballpark soon or maybe when uh, the Dodgers are in Arizona, we'll run into each other one day. Yeah, I'll, I'll, soon, soon enough. My kids get a little older, I'll, be, I'll start popping out. You'll probably, you'll probably see me resurface somewhere. <laughs> okay, okay, sounds good. Thanks a lot for the time, Paul, and, and great to share you with everybody. I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad your family's doing well, and we'll catch up soon. All right, take care. Best of luck with everything. My favorite. Uh, thank you. I'm glad to see you're not wearing khakis. Your favorite. And not everyone holds themselves to a high physical standard around here, but... Uh, Probably not Vasse's favorite. I know no one listens to your show, so... <laughs> <laughs> How so, dare you? <laughs> Just kidding. DV is joined by Andre Ethier. All right. I am at Petco Park taping this week's episode. Andre Ethier is on the beach. So uh, you had a chance to really enjoy Disneyland last week, Dre. Do you want to give us a scouting report on things? Well, before we start, let's wait here a second. Did I? Oh, do hear... I have to do the pleasantries? No, no. Did I hear you were on the road with the team? Yes, I drove myself down to San Diego. So they're letting me back on the field. Yes. And you are going on the road with the team now. I mean... If if things aren't looking up um, for Dave Vasse, I don't know what else is. The guy's uh, <laughs> his family's been trying to get rid of him for the last year, and uh, I guess they're one step closer. I like the uh, I'll take the Vince Scully schedule west of the Rockies. Yeah, only well, it was first west of of the Mississippi when I first got there, <laughs> um, and then it would turn west of the Rockies, but. Uh, so put yourself in the same breath as Vin. I think that's uh, overstepping quite a bit. I just want the schedule. I'm not saying I'm anywhere oh, okay. close to Vin. All right. He just wants the schedule, guys. He's, he talks about Vin's schedule, but, you know, a guy who's been, whatever, how long was 60-something years broadcasting games? Yes. Yeah, 63, I believe, was the total number. 63 years, and Dave S.A. parks cars for the players for eight, and he wants his own schedule. I could tell you were really jealous when you saw that video of me, Pollock, and Barnes. You had some FOMO that maybe I've moved on to those two guys and maybe you're yesterday's news in my life. But that's not true. I still love you. You're number one. Hey, uh, it looks like you have a good time. And I'm just glad you're allowed to be out on the field again, um, mixing it up with those guys. I mean, that's what I enjoyed was getting a chance to, uh, you know, see you on the field and give you a couple of wisecrack jokes and um, let myself know that even though my outfit might, might not always match it, it will never be as bad as one you're wearing out there. Hey, Dre, you know who's trying to take your your lead and the way they treat me is Walker Bueller, but he doesn't have the game that you used to have, the, the, the sparring, the verbal sparring that we had with each other. He's close, but he's not there. Why well, do people think I was just mean to you the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> People thought that. They thought that we really didn't like each other. I think Bueller doesn't. I think Bueller might go violent on me soon. He doesn't really like you? I don't think I mean I could tell you're, that you're you were you yours was not mean spirited, but sometimes he goes to a dark place and I'm not sure. You're easily unlikable. So let's put it let's just leave it there. <laughs> 
Hey, Dre, so you did go to Disneyland last week. Do you want to give fans a little scouting report if they should uh, go back to the happiest place on earth? Yeah, it was great. Uh, daughter's fifth birthday and uh, went there, I think, the day after California officially opened up to, uh, you know, full venues or whatever at a certain capacity. And, um, yeah, it was a great time. Um, you know, definitely some things to work around uh, still better than what I heard when it was just California residents they opened up, opened up with. But, yeah, it was great to be back and, you know, kind of coincided with Dodger Stadium opening up to full fans the, on the 15th there. And, um, you know, of course, had my four or five churros. I can't – I didn't keep, <laughs> keep track and of how many churros I had. And in the new Marvel uh, side of California Adventure there, they have a, a green churro – and it's, it has to do with the Guardians of the Galaxy thing that you're going to have to go find this green churro stand over there. And it's uh, it's rolled up. It's not in a long churro form. It's actually rolled up kind of in a in a circle. But uh, it's actually really tasty. And um, I think it was pineapple flavored maybe. And uh, it was pretty good. So, yeah, that's one thing my boys make sure is anytime we – past the churro stand they're always yelling out trying to get one and uh the lines weren't that bad um you know what we didn't get there in that heat wave or anything like that so uh it was a good time it was enjoyable glad that things are opening back up and you know you enjoyed a great time at disneyland when your daughter is having a great time and when you're walking out of the park at nine o'clock she's crying because she didn't get another churro <laughs> um, so that is a successful Disneyland trip when uh, you can do all those things. She, she had a great time. She's smiling, laughing, and then you're walking out of the park, and she just wants one more churro. So it was successful. See, when I go to Disneyland, the food is not on my mind, but it's on my wife's and my daughter's and my son's. I'm looking at the rides and trying to strategize the best ride to go on and come up with a game plan as far as timing of lines and all that. And I always feel like Peter Pan is the right move to go to first when you go into the ballpark or into Disneyland. I think Peter Pan is number one on my list. That's the only thing I'm concerned about, getting on that ride. Yeah, right. Fantasyland straight ahead. Uh, yeah. Right there. Yeah, that's a, that's a good one to hit. I, I think, you know, a strategy I always kind of look at is try to try to figure out the flow of the park that day. Which way are people moving and go the opposite direction? <laughs> yeah. You know, work work it backwards. Work it backwards. Try to see where where they're walking. If they're walk, if everyone's walking this way and following the crowd and following following the herd, maybe it's time to to jet off in the opposite direction and work your way in, you know against the against the grain. So uh, you know, there's all those tech you know patterns and and uh, and uh, ways to go out there and try to tackle Disneyland, but um, I'm only concerned about really the churros and the giant uh, <laughs> turkey, turkey leg. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not afraid to sit there on the curb uh, in front of the, the castle <laughs> and with a packet of mustard and lay out my, my foil-wrapped turkey dog and go to town, digging in on that thing and finish it up with a uh, churro with the cart right next to there, next to Disneyland. So, our decks of the castle. So, yeah, it was a good time. Um, you know, just glad things are uh, getting open again. And I know uh, my kids and everyone were excited to be back in the park for, uh, you know, a chance to go back to Disneyland and, and have some type of, you know, normalcy 
a little bit more than what we're uh, you know been used to the last year and a half here. All right, good scouting report, Dre, on Disneyland in 2021. We just had Paul yeah, Canerco. Do it. Yeah, just do it. We hey, we just had yeah. Paul Canerco join us right before you this week, and I know he's an Arizona guy, Chaparral High School. Was he a guy that uh, you that you cross paths with in Arizona? How well do you know Paul Canerco? Uh, I, I, now I know him a lot better than when we were playing against each other because we have uh, boys the same age and we see each other almost every other weekend now at baseball tournaments, uh, you know, either playing against each other or running each other at the parks. So we see him quite a bit. He actually coaches his assistant coach the last couple of years has been J.J. Putts, who huh. was you know the closer for the Diamondbacks in, in Seattle, and that's who his assistant coach has been with them on that team and JJ's uh, you know, son is the similar age. So we see each other quite a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely guy I looked up to there at the end of my high school and going, you know, my first couple of years during college, um, being an Arizona guy, a guy who just got into the big leagues there at the end of my high school and being in my college and being able to, uh, you know, emulate and want to be another Arizona player who, uh, you know, comes out and, you know, tries to make the big leagues and, you know, what a career he had. I think he secretly had a very, you know, great career that a lot of people, a lot of baseball people, I, I guarantee a lot of people from LA just for the fact that he was traded away so early and probably forgot about him, you know, just, just forget how successful of a career he had. Yeah, and the one thing that I thought that he said was really interesting, and I'm curious if you've had the same experience. I asked him how he's able to channel the competitiveness that he had for baseball after he retired, and he said he doesn't really have to channel it anywhere because he he said his tank is completely empty. He gave everything he could to the game of baseball, and he doesn't have any itch or any urge to be competitive in any other way. And he reminds me of you. You know, he's just invested so much into his kids now that he's able to be home. So are, are you do you feel like you identify with his life as well in that respect? Uh, yeah, I think we do. I think, you know, is your tank empty? Uh, well, it's not all the way empty. Um, <laughs> I still have enough competitive to come in here and and, uh, you know, one up you on this show every week so wow uh, that's where my that's where my competitive juices and carry the show for you every week so yeah that's where my competitive juices are now but you know you try to play this career you you know there's so many stages you go through from the from trying to cut your teeth in it and establish yourself have everyday big leaguers and you know you're uh establish yourself and now you're just trying to find a way to get up to the next level again and then at the end you're just uh not only just trying to hold on but try to finish the way competitively and help a team out the best you can. And um, during that time, you're, you know, digging deep and figuring out ways to keep going out there and doing it. And, uh, you know, everyone has that point where it's, it's time to just, you know, maybe move on to whether staying coaching the game or, or staying involved in the game or going on and, and doing stuff with your kids. And, um, you know, Paul has definitely been a guy who I've talked to quite a few times the last couple of years. And, um does he love the game of baseball? Yes. Does he miss playing? Yes. But I think he's very happy and enjoying what he's doing, uh, you know, back in Phoenix there. And, and yeah, I don't see him out there being the guy who's 
staring down the umpire or, or yelling at kids because of, of things going out in the stadium and field. I think he's understanding and knows, you know, what the game is and what it means. And uh, like you said, yeah, has definitely left his gas tank out there, uh, you know, in all those years playing there in Chicago. How about you? I asked you where your tank is. Uh, is that why you play golf all the time? Is that the way you channel your competitive nature that you no longer have no. with baseball? Uh, no, I think it's just, uh, you know, being, I, I think my competitive side gets more taken from, um, you know, just going out there and, and being available for my kids and, and being around and, and getting the opportunity to do that and uh, wanting to be there when, um, you know, athletically wise or even school wise, you know, uh, um, try to take it as a challenge to be available and present when they need that type of stuff and, um, that's what I'm trying to, you know, focus most of my energy and channel towards them. Uh, you know, whether it's, uh, being the afternoon, uh, stand in, uh, PE, uh, substitute for the day for their school or, or, uh, you know, being available to go on a field trip and then the same thing, being able to help, uh, fill in with their kid, you know, with the team coaching. So, uh, that's kind of where I'm channeling all that energy and focus for, um, you know, still waiting to see, uh, if there's a fit somewhere out there for me and you know when that happens i'll I'll gladly take it a fit in what coaching or front office uh anything everything taking your job on this radio station you know something like that wow so you're saying (laughs) come on you just opened the door would you be open maybe once your kids are grown up maybe to get back into the game in some capacity as a you don't want to get back on the day, day-to-day grind. You seem like a consultant type. You want to be a consultant where you could uh, uh, basically uh, give your input without having to be in the 162 grind. Uh, I mean, yeah, that sounds all great in theory until you get back in and then, then your real competitive juices get going again, and you want to be around it to make it the best. Um, I've seen it for many guys, and, hey th- – it's an unbelievable opportunity we get as baseball players, as former players to be a part of organizations that welcome you back. And anytime you're allowed to come back and and be a part of it, Um, you know, I'll never not be that company guy for the Dodgers because of what they've given me and the opportunities they open up to me. So, uh, you know, when they need help, uh, you know, when, our guy, Uncle Lon, likes to call and, and needs a favor for me to show up somewhere and do it. I'll always be there for that. Um, yeah, but I really haven't looked much past that of, you know, where I'm at right now in this stage in life, if, if that makes sense to you. Yeah, it does. It does. Sounds like you've lost your edge. Uh, I know you like to do that. You always like to try to ruffle my shoulder and say a lot of edge. Well, Maybe I lost that edge of that part, but um, I guess next time we're out to dinner, we'll see how much that edge is still there. You're like a retired Batman right now. You're like, uh, (laughs) hung up the cape for right now, you know. You know what what got me fired up was was watching that game last night and seeing uh, how well Darvish pitched and and realizing uh, this – this Dodger team, you know, definitely has an uphill battle here. And, and uh, you know, what an exciting venue it was last night in that stadium with a full crowd. And, you know, I don't think uh, I've ever seen uh, Padres Stadium that loud or heard that loud before 
um, you know, with that much support behind their own team. It's, it's been such a uh, a Dodger second home field yeah. and, and place to play the last, you know, 15 years. Yeah, you know what? It, it was the first time that I can remember that it was majority Padre fans and the Beat LA chants were as loud as they usually are in San Francisco. That's the way it felt after the first game in San Diego. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you said that because that's what I felt. I was sitting there watching on the TV and I kept hearing that and the boys were you know, talking about it here when we were watching. And I'm like, yeah, I think this is the first time been since I've paid attention that it's actually been mostly Padres. So, I, yeah, I guess I challenge all you Dodgers fans to get back there and reclaim uh, – <laughs> reclaim South, San Diego. Uh, <laughs> yeah, reclaim Dodgers South LA uh, Stadium that we've occupied for so long. All right. The Dodgers are back in San Diego in August, so uh, I'll be here. Hopefully more Dodger fans will be here as well. Dre, next week we're getting into the good and bad, the pitchers that you did well against and the pitchers that you did not do well against. I want to dive into that. Uh, for the next episode, and that's something to look forward to. And, uh, man, you really got me excited now. One day Andre Ethier will be back in baseball in some capacity. I love hearing that. So thanks a lot for another great episode. And uh, don't feel jealous, all right? I still love you. You're number one. If I send you a video of me and Pollock and Barnes, that doesn't mean that they've replaced you. You're still number one. I'll only get jealous if it's you and Kershaw, because I know, I know Kershaw is not <laughs> you tough enough for you to crack and if you can crack Kershaw then I know you're making inroads with that team so I'm not too concerned <laughs> okay all right don't worry you're still my guy yep I see I don't see any promises there because that ain't gonna happen Kershaw begs me to come into his uh circle of trust and I say you know what I'm happy right outside of it Mister, what, we, what, is, what is your new nickname on the team Mr. Peripheral <laughs> <laughs> You're always what do I do with Bueller? How do you want me to handle Bueller? I told him I've been here before he got here. I'll be here after he leaves. And he said in his next contract he's going to get it in writing. He wants me out. He wants you out? He said he's going to include that in his next contract. I mean, I guess bad luck for you, but I think you just tell him uh, how the – I think you just wait and see how this next game goes for Vandy, and you can get under his skin about how Vandy's playing in the World Series. I like that. All right, thank you for for the help. I appreciate that. We'll talk yeah, to you no, next you week. Can't think, you, you can never think on your own. <laughs> okay, that'll do it for Andre <laughs> you here this edge? week. That edge, that's edge for you. Finally, yeah, it's uh, still not the same. All right. Okay, see you later, Gramps. Peace. All right, really appreciate two Arizona guys being on the episode this week. Paul Canerco, drafted by the Dodgers, traded by the Dodgers, went on to a great career with the Chicago White Sox. And honestly, I never had heard him tell those stories and that perspective of being traded from the Dodgers to the Reds and then Reds to the White Sox. So hope you learned something there. And uh, as always, great to hear from my guy, Andre Ethier, 
who will never be replaced by anybody in my life. So uh, appreciate him always contributing every week to the Extra Innings podcast presented by Corona. We'll be back with you next week. Every Wednesday, this drops during the baseball season. Until then, we'll talk to you on Dodger Talk. See ya. We don't have to do anything extra. They've made a choice. This has been the Extra Innings Podcast. Extra Dodger content for Dodger fans who can't get enough of the blue. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't miss a single Dodger game at AM570LA Sports on the iHeartRadio app.